Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Today is Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday. Um, A day that for Christians commemorates the coming and the sending of the Holy Spirit and subsequently the birth of the church. But Pentecost has a a deeper history, uh, a longer history, I, I might say, than the, uh, the history of the Christian church, because it goes all the way back to the Jewish faith. Pentecost is actually the Greek name for the Jewish uh, celebration known as the Feast of Weeks. Um, you read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. There were three different um, feast days or three different uh, holy days within the Jewish calendar that all Jewish males of able body were required to travel to Jerusalem to observe. Those were Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles, okay? Um, and so Pentecost is one of the most holy days in the Jewish calendar. Penta is a prefix there, and it stands for 50. It, it means 50 because it comes 50 days after Passover. That's how it gets its name. 50 days after Passover comes Pentecost. So therefore, in Acts chapter 2, when we read about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost... We're reading about a group of people that was gathered together for this Jewish observance that's taking place 50 days after Passover, but that was also 50 days after Good Friday, the crucifixion. And it was, so it was about seven weeks after Easter, and it was about a week and a half after Jesus ascended to heaven. All these people are gathered together in the upper room in Jerusalem. Now, they were there to celebrate on Pentecost the, uh, the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And if you remember the stories from, from growing up of that, that event of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, you'll, you'll remember that the mountain was stormy. There, was, there were stormy winds. There was lightning. Um, the mountain, when Moses went up there, it, they say, it says that it was engulfed in flames. You might could even say it looked like there were tongues of fire up on the mountain. And then remember what happened when Moses came down? In Exodus 32, Moses came down. The people had thought that Moses was a goner, right? He went up there onto a mountaintop where there's flames and lightning and wind and storms, and there's no way he would have survived that. So they figure he's a goner. So they start looking for a god, and they decide to make a calf out of gold and worship it. But then Moses comes down with the law in hand, and the result is that the, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, which would end up becoming the priestly tribe, they take up their swords and they kill all of those who have been guilty of idolatry by worshiping that golden calf. So on that day, the day that they're commemorating in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were killed at the giving of the law. So Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, is when the Holy Spirit was given Peter preaches the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the people. And how many people came to life? How many people were saved? The text tells us there were 3,000. Kind of reminds me of what Paul would later say in... Oh, let's skip that one. All right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul said, The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter of the law came down at Mount Sinai and 3,000 people die. 
when the Spirit came on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which is where the upper room was, where all these people were gathered, when the Spirit came, 3,000 people were saved. So the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. That's what we're observing today. That's, that's, the, that's the significance of this for us as Christians. But the Holy Spirit is, is one of those things that a lot of Christians talk about. We understand that it's a part of our faith, but it's very mysterious to us. Um, it's something that we don't really know what to do with a lot of times. We, we know we're supposed to derive comfort from the presence of the Spirit, and we know some things about the Spirit, but a lot of times it's one of those things we can't quite put our finger on exactly how it's helpful to us, exactly how it impacts our, our everyday life. So let's think about what is the Holy Spirit? Um, good, we, most of us know that good Christian theology would say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? That's true. That's true. If you want to expand a little bit, you could see what has the history of the church taught us about the Spirit um, and what has the church kind of documented and formalized in, in its creedal statements. And you go back to the Nicene Creed from about 325 AD when the church was trying to figure out, uh, let's, let's make a definitive statement of who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit are, uh, who the Holy Spirit is. And this is what they came up with. This is the statement that deals with the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. So that's the confession of the church. That's the creedal statement that kind of summarizes orthodox teaching on the Holy Spirit. It's true. That's something that needs to be confessed. But once again, you look at that, and we try to figure out, okay, so how does this impact me on a day-to-day -day basis? And it can be a little bit harder to figure that out. Okay? So the Holy Spirit can be difficult to understand. But a lot of times, especially when you're talking about God um, in any of his three persons, when you're talking about God, sometimes it's easier to talk about what God is not as a way to wrap your head around what he actually is. Because God's, God's existence, God is so transcendent above anything that we can ask or imagine that, um, that to, to try to think of affirmative ways to talk about God, it's always limited by the limitations of our language and by the limitations of our imagination, right? So sometimes in order to wrap our mind around what God is, who God is, and what the meaning of God's presence is, sometimes it's easier to think about what God is not, okay? So what's the unholy spirit? You read the Bible, you read about Satan. Satan is the unholy spirit. Hebrew word is hasatan. The Greek word would be diabolos, which both of those mean the accuser. So Satan is the spirit of accusation. By, that's the literal meaning of the word Satan, the accuser. So Satan is the spirit of accusation. So what's the opposite of Satan? Uh, the, old, the unholy spirit would be the Holy Spirit. What's the opposite of accusation? Advocacy. So the Holy Spirit you can think of as a spirit of advocacy among us. Jesus called the Holy Spirit in John 14, a Greek word parakletos. Uh, which literally means one who comes alongside. One who comes alongside. So John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another parakletos. He will give you another one who comes alongside you who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit. And then down later in the chapter, in verse 25, 
He says, I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the one who will come alongside you as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I've told you. So the Spirit is the one that comes alongside us and says, I'm, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm by your side, I love you. That's God's presence that affirms that within us. The Spirit says, I'm not here to accuse you. I'm here to defend you. I'm here to advocate for you. God's present with us in the form of the Spirit of advocacy. And that, friends, is good news. That's gospel. All right? So, back in Acts chapter 2, we're Pentecost, so we're 50 days after the cross, 7 weeks after Easter, 10 days after the ascension. 120 Jews are gathered together in this upper room in Jerusalem on Mount Zion praying. And while they're doing that, there's almost, there's almost a kind of reenactment of what happened at Mount Zion that comes, but for each one of them. Because on Mount Sinai, Moses was up there and you have the wind and the flames and the storm up on the mountain. And on Mount Zion, God, or the Spirit of God, comes with the sound of wind and the tongues of fire dancing on each of their heads. And 120 people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of the letter of the law coming down from the mountain, these people receive the Spirit. Instead of death, these people receive life and salvation. Chapter 2 of Acts, verses 4 and 5. Actually, we're going to go through verse 8. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people, are, these people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. All right. So they, they were gathered there uh, in the upper room. And it says Jews from every nation were gathered there. Now that's probably a bit of hyperbole. But it's important that it's, that it's phrased in that way because back at the beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is recorded as having predicted or, or, or declared that the temple age would end when the gospel had been brought to all nations. Okay, And then the Pentecost then becomes the transition from the temple being a stone building located in a specific place um, to being the new temple um, that's made of living stones, a global temple that includes all nations within it. So after Pentecost, the old temple became obsolete. And within a generation, actually the old temple is destroyed, just like Jesus predicted it would be. So these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they start speaking in other people's languages. Languages they have never studied before. Those filled with the Holy Spirit of advocacy, you can take from this, those filled with the Holy Spirit of advocacy know how to speak other people's languages. They know how to speak the language of outsiders to convey God's love to them. Those who are only filled with the letter of the law, those who only have Bible knowledge but don't have the Spirit dwelling within them, often use that knowledge as a sword 
to accuse, to cut down, and to condemn. They come running down Mount Sinai uh, with all this Bible knowledge that they, that they have, like a, like a little Levite, swinging their swords and harming people. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, these people that, that have Bible knowledge without the Spirit of advocacy, without the Holy Spirit living within them, they're zealous. And they think that means that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. But what they're actually manifesting in the way they behave is a spirit of accusation, which is the unholy spirit. So Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside us, comes by our side and he says, I'm with you. I'm here to defend, not to accuse. So people are, who are truly filled with that spirit of advocacy, they use their knowledge of the scriptures to come alongside hurting people, to to help them and to heal them, not to cut them down. Those, those who have the Holy Spirit use the, the knowledge that they have to speak the language of love to people in a way that they'll understand God's love for them and how that they also are included in God's love for them in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, when you, when you start talking specifically about speaking in tongues, um, I believe it happened. I believe the Bible testifies it happened. I honestly don't know how I feel about it today. I don't know whether I believe it or not. I can say it's not part of my spiritual experience, what I've been through um, in my life. But at the same time, I don't begrudge anyone their own experiences. I think God can show himself to us in a lot of different ways and, and use us in a lot of different ways. So I don't know what I feel about the actual doctrine of speaking in tongues. But what I do know that I believe in is speaking the love of God in a language that can be understood by other people. That's the story of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. It's God bringing his love to people in a way that they can understand it and it being spoken to them. So on the day of Pentecost, Jews from every nation hear the gospel. So right off the bat, the church is a global phenomenon. Right off the bat, it's, it's global in scope and it's global in intent. So you, you go forward a couple chapters, which is a couple of years. A couple of years later, you have the first martyr in the church, Stephen. He was a deacon in the church. He stones to death. And that begins the first widespread persecution of Christians in history. It began there in Jerusalem. And it caused all of these disciples that were there, it caused them all to scatter. Okay? And then Philip, one of the, or another deacon, who was one of those in Jerusalem, when they scattered, he went off to Samaria to preach the good news. You read about that in Acts 8. And what ended up happening then when he preached the good news to the Samaritans is the Samaritans ended up becoming the first non-Jewish people to become believers in Jesus. They weren't quite Jews. They weren't quite Gentiles. They weren't, they weren't fully either, but they were the first non-Jewish uh, group of people to become believers in Jesus. And then what happens is Peter and Paul go from Jerusalem over to Samaria, where Philip has been preaching, and they go there to lay hands on the Samaritan, uh, the Samaritan believers, to pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are. Now, why is that significant? Follow me here. Just a couple of years earlier, Jesus and John had been in Samaria. And it was a very different experience for them because John tried to get Jesus to kill all the Samaritans. Remember that story, Luke chapter 9? Um, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was 
To say the least, it was volatile. I've heard it compared to the Jews and Palestinians today. It's kind of, kind of that where they have, a lot of, they have a lot in common. They have a lot of shared history and they generally despise one another, right? That's, that's what it was for the Jews and Samaritans back then. Um, but what happened was a Samaritan village, Jesus, Jesus and his disciples were passing through on their way to Jerusalem and they go through a Samaritan village and then when Samaritans find out they're headed to Jerusalem, they don't welcome them. They say, you're not welcome here. Well, that offends James and John, and they say in Luke 9, 54 and 55, they say, well, we should call down fire from heaven and burn them up, right? We've got this power. We've got God with us. We've got Jesus right here. Let's call down fire and burn them up. They are not filled with a spirit of advocacy. They aren't filled with the Holy Spirit at that point. So Jesus turns and rebukes them. He says, you're being an accuser. You're not being an advocate. He rebukes them for that, for that mentality, but now John and Peter are back in Samaria, when we, back in Acts chapter 8. John and, John and Peter are back in Samaria, and they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come down on the Samaritans. So what happened between those two different trips to Samaria? What happened was that Peter and John have been filled with the Holy Spirit in the meantime. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, our attitude changes in fact, that's one way to understand the Holy Spirit. In, 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 in a lot of ways, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of holiness. It's an attitude of advocacy. But it doesn't just change our attitude. It also changes our rhetoric. It changes the, the things that we say, and we start to speak in the holy language of love and advocacy and blessing instead of the unholy language of accusation and anger. That's the difference between those two trips to Samaria. So in Acts 2, you've got Pentecost. And when, when Peter explained what was happening there at Pentecost, he quoted the prophet Joel in Acts 2. Um, and he's actually quoting Joel 2, where Joel said, speaking the words of God, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Now the Jews at that time, they had, they had done the mental gymnastics necessary to read that and understand it as... I will pour out my spirit upon all kosher Jewish people. But yet here we have God pouring out his Holy Spirit upon Samaritan people, and very soon it would be Gentile people. So the gospel continues to spread. Now, when Stephen was stoned, um, there, was, there was an individual there. You know this story. There was an individual there, a young Pharisee, very zealous, very educated, that was presiding over that execution. Saul of Tarsus. Saul knew his Bible. In fact, he knew his Bible so well that he knew for certain that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he knew his Bible. And he knew that Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So when Saul finds out that there's, that there's Jews out there who are saying that a man who was hung on a tree was their Messiah that they've been waiting on for generation after generation, he was offended by that. He was offended by it. He was angered by it. And so he, be, he became accusatory about it and angry. And so he goes to the chief priests and he gets warrants to have them arrested and then he hears about some Jews in Damascus that, that have adopted this crazy idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's going to go to Damascus, arrest them, put them on trial, and if they're found guilty, he's going to preside over a few more stonings. That's his intention. Nine, Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, Saul was uttering threats 
with every breath. And he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Some versions say he was breathing threats. It's almost like he couldn't exist without this hatred, this anger just seething out with every breath he took. This man was not filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled with the spirit of advocacy. So with what Brian Zahn calls with the mean stride of religious certitude, he's marching to Damascus. I like that imagery. The mean stride of religious certitude. He's marching to Damascus and then he's certain of this. He's thinking about what he's going to do and then flash. All of a sudden, this bright light appears before him. He falls to a ground and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And somehow he immediately understands this to be the voice of God because he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Now, we usually call this Saul's conversion. But really, this is just the first part of Saul's conversion. Because Saul here, he, he suddenly, three minutes ago, he's marching down with this certainty that he's righteous, he's good, he's doing the right thing for the cause of, of God. And then suddenly, he goes from having everything figured out to having nothing figured out. Nothing makes sense all of a sudden. So he goes to Damascus, and for three days, he fasts and he prays. And I don't know what he's praying. He probably didn't know what to pray at this point. I assume he was praying the Jewish prayers that they, that they would recite um, at set intervals. But he's fasting and praying for three days, unable to see. And then Jesus sends a disciple to Damascus named Ananias to see Saul. And the Bible tells us that Ananias went and found Saul and he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says the scales fell off his eyes. That's his full conversion. Because what happened to convert him was that Ananias looked at him Ananias, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at him and he said, Brother Saul. And I can imagine Saul's thinking, these people call me brother? And that realization is when the scales fell from his eyes and he said, I see it now. I see it. God's, God is love. God is advocacy. God is not condemnation and anger. It makes sense now. He could finally see. So, you move on to Acts chapter 10. We're back with the Apostle Peter in a little seaside town of Joppa. And he goes up on a roof. It's about noon, about lunchtime. So there's probably people down below fixing the, fixing the meal. But he goes up on the rooftop at noon for his, for his prayers, uh, to say his noon prayers. And while he's up there, he has this vision Great sheet comes down from heaven. It's full of all these foods that Gentiles would eat, but no Jew would ever touch, right? A lot of bacon on that sheet, I'm, I'm assuming. But, there, you know, there's, there's shellfish of all kinds. There's pork. There's all these things that they couldn't, they couldn't eat. And a voice speaks up and says, all right, let's go here. There we go. A voice speaks up and says, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter responds and says, no, Lord. Now think about that, that sentence right there. 
You understand the irony and the, the contradiction within those two words all by themselves? No, Lord. By calling him Lord, I don't need to explain it. There's, a, there's an irony there in what he's saying. He says, I've never eaten anything that our Jew, Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. I've never done it. And then the voice says, don't call something unclean if God's given it to you. If God's made it clean and presented it to you, don't call it unclean. And then that vision is repeated three times while he's up there on the rooftop. And then three Gentiles knock on the door of this house and ask, and ask Peter to come to Caesarea. They basically say, look, we work for a Roman military officer. He's had a vision and you're supposed to come with us. Now, normally Peter, I'm sure, would have said no, but he, because of the vision he's had, he's willing to go. Now, he's never been into a Gentile house before in his life. But because he's had that vision, he's willing to go. So he travels up the coast uh, to Caesarea, where he crosses over a Gentile's threshold for the first time in his life. And the very first thing he says <laughs> when he walks in that house is, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter into a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. What a warm greeting he offers as he enters the home. He says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. God's shown me a new truth. God, the scales have fallen from my eyes, and I see things in a different way. So he goes on and tells the story of Jesus, the way he witnessed Jesus' story. And what happened there is that Pentecost is repeated. The same thing that happened a few years before in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost now happens for a bunch of Gentiles in Caesarea in the home of a Roman military officer. The door is just flung wide open and whosoever make, uh, what's the phrase? Whosoever will may come. Right? That's the new approach to the kingdom. The rest is history. The rest is church history. It's the progress of the church once the doors were flung open to all people. So, here's what I'll leave you with. We aren't called to be Levites, cutting down people with our Bible swords. That's not, that's not our mission. That's not our calling. That can feel good in some ways. It can feel holy. It can feel righteous, but it is unholy. It can feel spiritual, but it's demonic, to put it bluntly. That's Mount Sinai. That's, that's the letter that kills. That's the unholy spirit that's at work within us. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he says, you haven't come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. That's not the mountain we've come to. We're not at the place where we're waiting on, on God to give us the letter of the law. That's not what we're waiting on. Verse 22, he says, no, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. So today we've come to Pentecost again. We've come to the day where we think about the filling of the Spirit in our lives. So we don't use the Bible to condemn. We don't use the Bible to cut down. We don't use the Bible to kill. We use the word of life to invite the excluded, to invite the outsider, to invite the, the, the wounded, and to bring healing in the name of Jesus. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the spirit of advocacy. Pray with me, if you will. Lord Jesus, we have come to know and to believe 
that you are the Savior of the world. You're the Savior of us. You died for our sins. You were raised on the third day. You were exalted um, in glory to the right hand of the Father and that you sent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of advocacy. You sent the Holy Spirit to your church. And so we ask on this Pentecost Sunday that you will fill each of us individually. We ask that you'll fill us together as a church with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be Levites. We don't want to be people that, that cut down and, 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 and are filled with anger and that use our Bibles as swords for destruction and pain and killing. We want to be healers, God. We want to be advocates. We want to be those that know how to speak the language of the outsider so that we can tell them the, the good news of Jesus and about your work. So Lord Jesus Christ, send us the Holy Spirit. And we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. So may we go forth now um, filled with the Spirit to be those who speak in this language of love and advocacy, telling, telling people everywhere that you are accepted by God. God loves you. You are loved by Jesus Christ. God wants better for your life than wherever it is currently. And you too can be a part of this healing and saving and redeeming work. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have come to each of us and that you stand by our side and that you remind us not to worry about anything, that God is with us, that you're by our side. You remind us that you'll defend us through thick and thin and that when we're accused that you'll be there to be our advocate. Thank you. May we be filled with the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.